Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. You know, we don't talk about this very often, but every week I literally get tens of letters. Tens? Tens. Wow, that's much bigger than my ones of letters. Every once in a while, well, sometimes they come, usually it's emails, but okay, I get tens of emails. Tens of Tens of emails. Every once in a while, maybe even one or two of them have something to do with the show. Oh, I thought you were getting tens of emails about the show. No. I get see, hundreds I of emails. See, I, see, I get ones about the show. See, see you, you, you're jumping ahead here. Okay. Every once in a while, I get like one about the show. Well, I, I got one this past week about the show. I need to share. You got an email. Wow. It says, Dear Bloke in a Bird Show, I find it frankly beyond belief that a show of your caliber has failed to partner with automotive manufacturers and designate an official car of the Bloke and a Bird Show. If the U.S. ski team has an official automotive partner, why don't you? And it's signed by Pete from Passamaquoddy, Maine. Well, Pete is very wise. <laughs> it just so happens that this week we reached a deal to designate the official 1970s-era British sports car of the Bloke and Bird Show. You're basically saying we reached a sponsorship <laughs> deal with a company that no longer exists, <laughs> is what you're saying. <laughs> I think some of the well, no, actually, I don't know if it. Well, Lotus was was a British sports car. I understand that. So maybe it was it was Lotus. No, I I assure you (laughs) that our official British sports car of the bloke and the bird show is not a Lotus. Oh, it is definitely from a company that no longer exists. (laughs) That's not true either. They do exist. They're owned by a Chinese company now, and they are producing names under that, or, or producing cars under that badge. I believe they're they're not producing them in Britain for the British market yet, but they are producing them. Oh, so there's the possibility of a Chinese knockoff. Well, a Chinese knockoff of a crappy late mid to late '90s two door sports car is what they're doing. Fantastic. Okay, so now that we've lost both members of our audience, um, we should back up and say that in the past week, we have had a 1971 MGMGB fall into our lap, and it kind of hurt, <laughs> you know, falling well, and such. It, it, it goes back to, you know, last week we talked about how we went down to the Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course. Mm-hmm. And we're we're down there watching the cart races. What at what a little more of what happened that day was on the way back. We happened to have been getting off the highway to come home, and sitting in the front of the local Auto Mart, the big five car dealership local Auto Mart, was a red MG. So we swung by because you know it's not often you see a red MG sitting at the local auto mart and quite frankly the auto mart's gonna let us paw all over it and fawn for a while as opposed to you know your average mg owner that you've you know flagged down well there's that there's also this is where we very 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 quickly learned how little the used car salesmen at this dealership know about oh cars in general well when the guy walked up to you and said so do you like convertibles 
as opposed to well, before, classic British car. <laughs> but before he even got to that, he goes, I don't know anything about this thing. Way to start off a sales conversation there, dude. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Well, you know, at least you came out at the beginning and told us, but still. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, um, this partially restored, um, very good condition, Flame Red, 1971. I am emphasizing that it's a 1971 because it is older than both of us. Yes. Um, Chrome bumper, MGB. Uh, black interior. That's about all we can talk about it. I mean, it's... Four-speed. Four-speed. No overdrive. No rust. No rust. <coughs> no radio. No AC. No... It has AC. Yeah, the top down. There you go. Um, you know, there's not... there 1971, there's no computer. No power brakes. Power, no power steering. That's fun. Um, so we're we're learning, and it's quite fun. Took it to a mechanic. The mechanic was very impressed by her condition. And I think the most important thing that we could announce is that she has a name. Yes. After Claire Williams. Well, not exactly. Yes. No. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she is officially named Claire. After Claire Williams. She is officially named after the lead character of my favorite book, who is a British lady out of her time and country, hence the connection to the MG. But the asterisk is that Michael tried to name her after his celebrity girlfriend. Whatever so. whatever makes you sleep at night. <laughs> her name is you know, Claire. You it elected well. not to name her Susie after Susie Wolf because she has that great voice. Well, yes, (laughs) I did, because she was already Claire, and she's doing very well as being Claire. Anyway. Anyway. Speaking of Williams. Yes. Okay, so last week was the European Grand Prix that wasn't in Europe. It was in- In front of Bowser's Castle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was about the best nap I've taken in a while. You know- Considering the number of outstanding races that we have had this year, mm-hmm. and, and just an outright string of them, and how much we expected with all of the unknowns and all the things that we had seen in the lead-up to the race regarding what happened, well, in some of the free practices and the utter carnage of the GP2 race, which we'll get to in a little bit, this we thought was going to be something that was going to keep you on the edge of your seats. And I think the best thing that we got out of it, and we didn't find out about it till till later, was Williams, not only did they get, once again, because they've, they've swept it so far this entire season, the fastest pit stop ever, or, or fastest pit stop of the race, they hit the fastest pit stop ever. Like world record fast. L- yes. Well, um... Initially, the the number that came out from Formula One was that it was 1.92 seconds, which we needed a little more information on that for the world record because as fast as that is, Red Bull did a couple of years ago on Mark Webber's car, they hold the world record for 1.923 seconds. Ooh. So we are waiting for the full update as to what the exact time was, and it turns out 
that when they pulled the data off of Moss's car to actually get the result, it was 1.89 seconds. Wow. Yeah. This coming from a team that not only could were, – were they running slow pit stops? They couldn't get the right tires on the car last year. They had wheel nuts getting stuck left and right. They were an absolute disaster when it came to their pits. So we know <laughs> – that over the winter, that their pit crew went into intensive pit training. People were getting beat up. There were, I mean, it was it was it was pit boot camp. Yes, yeah. what it was. So congratulations to Williams on that. You know, even though they're having a kind of middling season at mm-hmm. best, the at least they cannot blame it on the pit crew. True. True. They'll have to find something else to blame it on. Yeah. But um the car might not be fast but the tire changes are. Hey. <laughs> so back to the lack of incidents on track. Yes. And the explanation there. There were and we, and we saw bits and pieces of this. We actually uh streamed the start of the GP2 race. Mm-hmm. And uh that was a really bizarre start. They got to the first, and, and there were multiple issues with safety car restarts. Right. Um, f- turn one in the first lap, two cars, uh, there were two sets of cars, four cars total, but two sets of cars ended up on top of each other. Yes. I'm not exactly sure how you did that, but one car's front wheels were on top of the Front car's back wheels. The, the situation got so bad in GP2 that one of the drivers actually earned himself a one-race ban for his conduct in the safety car restarts. Whoa. Yeah. So So he goes to the naughty <coughs> corner. In, in The naughty step. The naughty step? Yes. They had to it, add it, another naughty step? Yes. Well, no, because right now Lewis and Nico aren't on it, so there, there was there's a free a, step. <laughs> there's a free spot for him on the naughty step. <laughs> um. <laughs> But watching what was going on in the GP2 races in particular, but some of the, the banging that happened in during the, the various practices and qualifying, we thought that this was going to be an incident strewn race. Oh, yeah. We got nothing. No. It, it was the most like, we got was a blue plastic bag. Which was pretty annoying, blue plastic bag. Yeah. Um, kind of reminded me of that scene in American Beauty where he took the video of the white bag floating around. <laughs> yeah. Um, see, cultural reference right there. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag cultural reference. Nice. Oh, wait, you, you ruined it with the hashtag. Uh, you know, I'm trying to be more like uh, Channel 4. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to embrace my inner Channel 4. Got it. Um, but it was... It, there's a part of me that says that all of the F1 drivers watched GP2 and went, we're not going to do that. But there wasn't anything going on. Well, Jensen had a comment on why it was so different and what was happening there. You know, Jensen said that we saw incidents in the feeder series, but that's because they're feeder series. To get up to F1, you have to be very good in other categories and stay out of trouble feeder series is all about trying to impress to get the jump to formula one so it's completely understandable that there are more incidents whereas in formula one there's more respect and a bit more of an understanding but it was actually a fun race and i enjoyed it 
because that's one of the things is the drivers came out and they said, you know, I they really enjoyed the track. They enjoyed the track. And hearing this from Jensen, who initially was saying that this track is dangerous and we should yeah. have no business being out there because the, the runoffs are too small for him to come out and say that he enjoyed it. And several of the other drivers said that they really enjoyed driving this track. The combination of speed and the tight corners, they, they thought it was fun. The problem is, and, and I, I go to some comments that of all people Alan Prost made, uh, apparently he kept the reporters awake long enough to make it because he's dull as dirt to listen to, was he found the coverage in terms of where the cameras were and the positioning and what they could show and where they were cutting to, he thinks that was the problem. Interesting. Now, okay, <coughs> There's a couple of thoughts I have about that, though. So let's let's back up for a second. Mm -hmm. I think Jensen's 100% correct. I think it doesn't take a far leap to understand that a GP2 race is going to have less experienced drivers. Yeah. And you would naturally have more incidents. I definitely see that. But they kept having incidents in similar places. So one would have thought that there would have at least been sort of, a, you know, a push or a more aggressiveness going on and you just didn't see that which was fine mutual respect nobody mm -hmm. got hurt I'm, I'm i'm down with that plan but i find it interesting and unfortunately i think i hear this coming a couple of times through some other races some of the races that we have declared to be kind of dull to watch the drivers have come out afterwards and said that was a lot of fun and i think that in some ways you get a course that is mentally challenging to the driver whether they're always passing or not if the course is mentally challenging to the driver it doesn't necessarily translate to watching and i would suggest that those people out there that want to fix f1 need to really listen to this you can't if you create a course that's mentally taxing to the driver you may reduce the amount of passing which is visually exciting to the to the yeah. spectator so there's a balance that has to start happening and you can't artificially create passing without it becoming a very dull course for the drivers because you got to have the room for the passing and what makes it exciting for the drivers is when it's tight corners and when it's long straights to you know get really fast and that's important so you can there's a balance that's not happening and I found, and maybe Alan has got a point, that the coverage wasn't done well because they didn't know where the things were going to be on the track. I, I, I think that was some of it. The other is, I think the layout, and, and granted, again, Monaco has 50-some-odd years of experience figuring out where to best put stuff. But I'm not completely sure that the layout of the city is conducive to getting enough of the angles that would make it exciting because yeah we saw the cars popping through the the uh the turns in seven eight nine over by the, the castle there mm -hmm. but you couldn't see from a we saw them coming out of it we saw them popping in it but you couldn't see it through it right yeah, I think you're <clears throat> right. I think that there was a lack of certain key points, but 789 wasn't where there was some exciting things going on. But visually, it was stunning. Visually, it would be I fun mean, to watch. Th they're right. Th that The shot of the car coming up that crest right by the castle wall there is going to be the signature shot 
of that track mm-hmm. and potentially of the season. But all in all, I have to say, it was a snooze fest of a race. Just was. Now, you say that, and yes, it wasn't the most exciting. Total Wolf has come out and said, we need more tracks like Baku. Poor K1. Mainly for the visual aspect of it. Because it is a very impressive setting to have those cars running as fast as they are through the narrow streets like that. I don't know where they're going to put more spectators, because that was the other thing. Yeah, there, there's three or four grandstands, but it's not like they could line the walls. or I mean, you had buildings right there. Yeah. So I don't know what they're going to do with that. But one thing that came out afterwards mm. is that while, yes, you had a lot of buildings that appeared to be really nice-looking buildings lining the track, some of what we saw wasn't what was actually there. Did they have facades? They did. Really? There were banners hung in front of several of the buildings to make them look like really nice buildings. No kidding. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. But, I mean, it shouldn't come as that much of a surprise that the track was, the layout was questioned in both directions. I mean, they went back to the drawing board several times and expressed a lot of concern as to whether or not they could generate an exciting race from this track and from the sit the layout of the city. Didn't they change one of the turns the day of or well, that weekend? But that was for safety reasons. Right, and they were changing out curbs and things like that, but there was one that had to be reworked right then and there. Yeah, we, and we talked about that last week. Right. So I guess... One of the bigger stories was Lewis Hamilton completely falling apart. (laughs) I'm not sure you could describe it as anything other than that. Yeah. There were, it appeared to be a settings issue in the car, and Lewis was having problems with the Control-Alt-Delete button. Yes. Best that we could tell. Now, Toto Wolf has come out, and he has talked about and explained what has happened okay what he says and and, and i don't completely understand why this would have happened in the first place but what he says is that they had a configuration setting problem it's an electronic setting but with engine modes and it occurred on both cars and that's what confuses me here Hmm. okay so this is an electronic setting on both cars and both drivers had the problem okay i don't know if that means that initially what they had discussed was a setting that they discovered wasn't suitable for race day and that they needed to change it or what? Hmm. Because it seems odd that if this was a configuration setting problem that both cars would have the problem. It wasn't just a matter of Lewis maybe flipping a switch that he shouldn't have. Yeah. But then why didn't it affect Nico the way it affected Lewis? I don't know. He said... um, Nico was in a more fortunate situation. Uh, he did a, a switch change just before, which kind of led him on the right path. So within a half lap, he went back into the right mode. But Lewis, because he didn't have the right path, it took him a while to figure it out, 12 laps. And this is for sure what affected his race. He said the reason for the incorrect preset had its roots in Friday practice. He said the settings were wrong because they had a messy Friday where they couldn't configure it the way they should have done. 
So it was preset in the wrong way, and it happened a little bit earlier on Lewis's car than on Nico's car. I think it was three laps earlier. You're permanently trying to optimize the modes, and this was an optimization which we felt we needed to have on the car and which needed the right calibration. Interesting. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> the struggle I really have with this mm -hmm. is not so much that there was an incorrect setting. It's this idea that now that we've just let the drivers go loose in the cars, we are hampering good racing because the pit wall can't tell them how to fix it. Well, that's the debate that has arisen. And Sky Sports and their, and their post-race coverage may have made it a bigger deal than it actually was. But we had at least two. It may have been as many as three different situations within this race where something happened on the car and the team could see it. The team knew exactly what the issue was and knew how to fix it. But because of the changes in the rules, could not tell the drivers what was going on. Mm -hmm. and could not give the drivers the information that the drivers needed to fix the problem. And I agree. I, I, I don't think that this makes things better. I don't think that this is hand-holding on the part of, of the drivers. I don't think the, the attitude of, well, the driver should have a good enough feel of the car to be able to recognize that the switch needs to be on A32 instead of N24. Well, I think, here's where I think they they could handle this radio ban right. I can almost buy the no coaching rules. I can buy that. Mm -hmm. But what I think that if the driver initiates the question, the pit wall should be allowed to answer them. So I see I'm having an issue. I'm in the wrong mode. How do I get it out? They should be able to answer that question. That's not coaching. That's not the pit wall well, reaching out yeah. to the driver the, going, you're in the wrong mode. And the, the, There's a difference between the car is derating, which is what was radioing back and forth, and both sides re recognizing that the car is derating mm -hmm. and saying the fix is put blue switch to seven as opposed to you can get a half second more out of your lap if you break deeper into turn three and we think it's safe for you to break deeper into turn three that's different those are different things but if the um, my feeling is if it's a driver initiated question then the pit wall should be allowed to answer mm-hmm and maybe it's not so much if the driver says, how can I get a half a second more a lap? But it's more of the controls within the car. Mm -hmm. I think that that should be a no-brainer of being able to say, I'm, an, I'm feeling I'm not in the right engine mode. Or I think my tires are going. Can you check the pressures? Can you give me some feedback that says I am or am not right? Well, he, doesn't, he has that indication in the cockpit. Well... But in engine modes and, you know, you get enough information regarding engine modes to have that right there. But whether or not you're in the correct engine mode for the situation is a different story. But I think that the goal of the radio ban was to make the drivers drive the car back, to drive their car. Yes, to drive the car without assistance. Right. But I don't think that the the if the driver says i need help to get it from point a to point b 
because this is where I want to go. It, right. Even so much as saying, I need to be in engine mode nine, and I know I'm in engine mode four, and what's the setting to do that? The pit wall should be able to answer that question. You know, that's not coaching to me. You know, if you're driving your car down the road, Mm -hmm. and you can't... No, not your NG, because of where I'm going here. Okay. But you're driving your car down the road, and you go to turn on the air conditioner, Mm -hmm. and it's not cooling. Mm -hmm. You do have the ability to pick up the phone and call me or call Volkswagen or call the dealership and go, hey, there's no cold air blowing out of the vents. What do I need to do to make cold air come out of the vents? Exactly. And they'll tell me to push the AC button. Well. (laughs) You idiot. Or bring it in because it needs to be checked. Uh Uh-huh. Now, if it was the MG, you'd tell me to put the top down. Yeah. (laughs) Pull over first, but yeah. Uh, Yeah, there is no putting that top down in any other way without pulling over. Yeah. It's it that that's a process that is not intuitive. But you know, by comparison, if you're driving your car and you're on the exit ramp mm-hmm. and you don't know whether or not to put it in second or third in order for it to run, you know, to to have a good jump getting off the line or whatever it is, that's a different story. Yeah. That's a different story. And I think that they need to be rational about this. Now, I realize that by definition, Formula One teams are going to push the very edge of the rules. And if you allow certain things, you could be opening yourself up to what would be considered coaching. But I honestly believe that there's a spirit to this that's not that. Because here's here's the downstream problem. You kept Lewis for 12 laps in a deregulated, a, a de-whatevered engine, a lesser engine mode. Mm-hmm. De-rated. De-rated engine mode, which means that for 12 laps, he wasn't racing at top form. And was that not the point? Was that not the point of all of this, we're going to fix F1 to keep, get the drivers to race flat out? And you're artificially, basically, preventing one of your best drivers to be able to race flat out. And, and to be clear, this isn't just a Lewis for Lewis. This isn't just a Lewis issue. This isn't just a Lewis situation. Kimmy ran into a similar situation where a problem popped up on the car, and he could not get information about it, including to the point where he said to the team, can I just ask you questions and you tell me yes or no? (laughs) And the team went, no. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't just the, well, you screwed up Lewis's race. This is just, in general, how these cars are designed and set up. And built. Exactly. I mean, it takes a team. And I think that we we lose the focus that it's a team effort. Yeah. And I'm highly opposed. I'm going to write tens of letters to Bernie. So, moving on. Yes. Max Verstappen. How is young Max? Well, he's saying that... uh, He's understanding the car more and more. Now, this after coming in fourth in Canada and eighth in Azerbaijan and a wall in Monaco. 
<laughs> but he was first in Spain. Yes, he was. Um, he's saying that he's understanding the car more and more. He says he has a great car, so you don't need to be li on the limit straight away because you have a margin to improve. And specifically, he's talking about qualifying and qualifying performance. Mm. He, he says that he was he, he had to get used to in a Toro Rosso. As soon as he got out there, you had to be pushing it as much as you, as hard as you could, and you were constantly fighting to make it through each level of qualifying. He says he doesn't need to do that with the, the Red Bull. Oh, nice. Um, what he says is that, you know, you can do 80 90% through Q1 and, and Q2 to make your way through, and you don't really need to push the car. You don't need to really be on the edge until Q3. You don't need to take the risks with the Red Bull because of how much better it is than a Toro Rosso in the earlier sessions. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. He said... Because that's always what we hear. Do just enough to get through to the next session because Q3 is where, where you win. Yeah. He, he said that basically it's, it's a shift in attitude in how he drives and how he approaches sessions. Um, and it's basically relearning. Um, he said his approach in Baku showed how he had changed since Monaco. Um, he said he built it up completely differently to what he did in Monaco. Um, it seemed to work perfectly well because every session I was improving and building up the confidence. Q1 to Q2 was a good step, and then Q2 to Q3, you start really pushing, uh, and it would have been a great lap. Um, but having reached Q3 in Azerbaijan, eh, he ha had his run-ins with Valtteri. Yeah. So Ferrari. Ferrari described his driver's uh, performance in Azerbaijan. I'm not so sure I agree with this about Kimi, but he describes his driver's performance in Azerbaijan as spectacular. The car, on the other hand, less so. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> okay. by this point last year, there had already been, what was it, two wins at Ferrari? Mm -hmm. At least one. Yeah, they won Malaysia and they won Singapore last year. We haven't had Singapore. No, they had three runs. They, they had three, bleh, three? three wins total. Three. three. <laughs> Thank you. I was channeling my inner FUD. <laughs> three. I was channeling my inner what, FUD. What number does that come between? <laughs> 12 to 5. Moving on. <laughs> three. Three wins. Okay. Um, But there were three wins last year. We haven't had any, mm -hmm. which this this was Ferrari rebuilding. They've certainly narrowed the gap. They've definitely narrowed the gap. They're definitely more consistently the best of the rest. But remember, this is Ferrari. They don't narrowing do the gap isn't good, especially considering how long that they have been uh, winless in terms of constructors and drivers. True. Narrowing the gap isn't quite good enough. And that's why we've heard the rumors. And, yeah, it's impressive that they got a second out of it. But beyond that, well, they're starting to be a bit unhappy with the overall performance of the car. But remember, we have been told, we've been told that it won't be Ferrari that dethrones Mercedes. Yes. It will be McLaren. Ron Dennis says that Ferrari's not going to pull this off. Ferrari's car is crap. 
And the McLaren is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't for the, this dang engine and those damn kids, <laughs> the kids we would have won by now. The kids that are on his lawn are the problem. Yeah. Not the seagulls. Oh, it's certainly not the seagulls. <laughs> um, all that being said, Maurizio Arriva Bene says that it would be crazy for Ferrari to shift its focus to the 2017 car. It's not time yet. Nope, not at all. He says that there is still more development that they can do, that there is more that they should do to bring them closer, and they think that it is not time to really start taking that long, hard look at 2017. There are a lot of races left, but at some point you've got to think, if you don't have a chance to win the championship, I mean, yeah, at this point it's a dice for second, and second is still a lot of money, but if you don't have the chance to win that championship, should you start looking the other way? Well, see, I think that you have to start getting teams working on 2017. I really do. Because I think, quite frankly, if you haven't started thinking about it, you're late. Yeah. But I think there's a point to be made of, yeah, you may not win, but you don't want to fall backwards any further. And and there has and, been preliminary design work on Ferrari's 2017 car completed. But Red Bull is nipping at Ferrari's heels. Yep. And they can't take their eye off the current season's ball just yet. In this case, they'd be ball joints, but just, you know. Thank you. No problem. Um, but you can't do that. If you were to stay status quo right now, Red Bull will eat your lunch. Mm -hmm. Because Red Bull's not going to stop progressing. And Ferrari has to keep their eye in 2016. Now, when, they do, when do they make the full shift over to say we are only going to be doing minor things in 2016 versus pushing all of our resources to 2017? I still think that they're not there yet. I think you have to get post the midseason break. I think you have to start settling out where you might fall in the championship. And as long as you are dicing it up with Red Bull for two for the second place, you can't stop. But the one thing you do have to remember is that unlike going from 2015 to 2016, where your developments for your 2016 car, especially when it came to aero, could potentially be leveraged on your 2015 car because there wasn't a major change, there is a major change coming for 2017. So there's a pretty good chance that the developments that they are putting together for that 2017 car and the designs that they're working on for that 2017 car cannot be translated into the 2016 and yeah. vice versa. So at some point, yeah, that focus needs to shift and it's going to be a wholesale shift. I understand. Okay. So speaking of 2017, you know, we know that there's a lot of turnover that that's going to happen driver wise and Ferrari has come out and they have said that they are in no rush to re-sign Kimmy. And everyone who is shocked by that, say hello. But they haven't, they haven't made a decision one way or the other. Although Maurizio Rivabene coming out of Baku said that Kimmy was a really good teammate. Oh, kiss of death. He's a nice guy. Well, he was specifically referring to Kimmy following the team orders to let Sebastian pass. 
despite the fact that they weren't really racing, they were on different strategies. And, you know, Kimmy, he was so nice to let him pass that when they said, you know, make sure you let Sebastian pass, Kimmy's response is, well, you better tell him to push so he doesn't hold me up. Mm -hmm. Of course, when Sebastian passed and Kimmy made that radio message, he was like half a track ahead already. I mean, it was ridiculous. But that that was nice. Yeah. I'm telling you, we are weeks away from hearing what a nice guy Kimmy is. <laughs> we are weeks away from it. Sergio Perez is shifting gears a little bit. Sergio Perez says that he is happy at Force India, although the rumors continue to to circle that he might be going to Ferrari. You know, for his sake, truly, for just for Sergio's sake, I hope that if he gets picked up by one of the big boys. Again. Again, that it's the right time for him. Yeah. I think, honestly, he, and I think he recognizes this too, it was too soon for him to have gone to McLaren. And I think that hurt him and it set him back. And... He's he's a good driver. I'm not going to say that he's not a good driver. He's a good driver, but is he consistent enough to play in the big leagues? And that's my concern. I don't know. I mean, he has managed to get a Force India on the podium twice yep. this season alone. I think the stat was saying that Force India has had five podiums over it, its lifespan, mm-hmm. over in its history, and like four of them were by Sergio. Yeah. I mean, he, he's definitely brought the team a lot of success, and there's some good reason for the team to want him to stay. There's also some good reason for him to be looking if he can move up a bit. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting, Ferrari has a very, very large driver development program, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of drivers who, have e- who are either currently in that program or or who have graduated through that program. Sergio's one of them, by the way. Okay. But despite the fact that Ferrari has such a large driver development program, it's been something like 50 years, if not longer, since Ferrari has been the debut ride for a driver. Interesting. They have always taken drivers who have driven at other Formula One teams. Now, they may have come up through the Ferrari driver program, but they have never been the first. They have not been the first ride for a driver in something like fifty years. Interesting. Yeah. Well. But speaking of Force India. Yes. Force India had said a couple of weeks ago that, um, I think it was coming into uh, Barcelona, that based on the performance of the car in Barcelona, they were going to make the decision as to whether or not to shift the focus to 2017. Right. And they did fairly decent, and you know they had the podium in Monaco, which was outstanding. But we didn't hear what they were doing, what their plans were. They have now officially announced after Baku that they are shifting the majority of their resources to the 2017 car. It's time. So the focus on 2016, they're not going to be bringing necessarily new stuff, uh, but it's going to be tweaking what they've got. Makes perfect sense to me, and I think that's the right answer for a mid-pack team that's nipping at the heels of some of the big boys. Yes. Uh, More driver news. Mm -hmm. Nothing firm yet, 
But uh, it is expected that uh, Toro Rosso will continue to let, uh, well, to give a seat to Carlos Sainz. Now, what's unusual is for Toro Rosso to keep a driver for three years. It's pretty rare. But there's nowhere for him to go. Right. At least within the organization, there's nowhere for him to go. And this word is coming direct from Franz Tost. Hmm. Well, I find it interesting on a couple of levels. One, keep a driver for three years is pretty rare for Toro Rosso, although... I think they could choose, they, they have chosen a, a very nice and good driver to keep around. You're right. There's no place for him to go up right this minute. At least within the organization. Correct. And, but I also find it interesting. I can tell you that I think we could mark Daniel Kvyat's time with an egg timer at this point. I think even Daniel feels that way. Um, there, there has been talk that, he may not make it through the season because of the issues that he has had mm-hmm. and that things have not gotten better once he moved out. Now, they did say that at least relations between teammates at Toro Rosso have gotten better. Oh, good. Because, you know, Max isn't there anymore. Right. So, you know, you've got one teammate who's now fighting for his life and the other who's like, I've, I've got to drive, I'm happy. Yeah. So another Jean. Jean? Jean Todd, FIA president. This year, the negotiations are beginning, and I think they've already started, on the new commercial agreement between the teams and the race promoters Okay. for Formula One, the, the, the next version of the Concord Agreement. Well, Jean Todd over at the FIA, president of the FIA, has come out and said that the FIA must have a role in this and needs to have final say in whatever agreement is put forth because Jean Todd wants to make sure that the teams cannot overrule him again. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry that you don't like to be overruled, but seriously? This is the arrangement that you put into place. Exactly. You ceded, and and possibly due to EU regulations, and and I shouldn't say you because he wasn't running the FIA at the time. He inherited it as when he became president. But this is the the arrangement that the FIA put in place. Now that being said, he is in a position to influence the future agreement, and this is the time to do it and the way to do it. Mm-hmm. But That was what was put into place. Those are the rules you had to to work with. Exactly. He also said, and I didn't realize this this week, um, he is pushing uh, FOM to come up or to at least talk a little more about their secession plan. Because let's face it, Bernie's not a young guy. But what he has also said is, and and I, I don't think anybody realized this, the FIA apparently has either final say. They have some say in his replacement. Ooh. I don't know whether it's a final say or how much influence, but apparently they have some influence and approval ability for whomever is named to replace Bernie Eccleson. Well, here's the thing. 
going by the old adage mm-hmm. that the good die young, Bernie is not going anywhere anytime soon. True. <laughs> True. Bernie has been speaking lately. Oh, no. About a couple of things. Oh, no. Um, particularly, he's been talking about um, future races and what is coming on the calendar, what will not be coming on the calendar. Um, first one... And and in response to some of Bernie's comments in Azerbaijan, the Brazilian Grand Prix. Now they have put a lot of money into that track recently. Mm -hmm. There have been a there there were a lot of complaints about two years ago regarding the condition of the track, the condition of the facilities used by the team and the press and everybody else. um, That they were run down, and there has been a lot of money spent. The track has been completely repaved. Um, all the garages have been renovated, and a lot of the media facilities have been renovated. A lot of work has been done, but apparently there is not th- there is still more work to be done. Okay. Um, and Bernie wants more work to be done. Okay. And as a result, that uh, I guess the the work is not moving at the pace that Bernie wants it to happen, and Bernie has come out and said in Azerbaijan that he did not feel that the race would be happening next year. Now he's done this before. He's done this to Silverstone. He did this to Germany and it failed. He did it to Silverstone and it worked. He's done it to other tracks. Oh yeah. It, it, it's a move that Bernie has pulled multiple times now the organizers at the british grant or excuse me of the brazilian grand prix insist that uh, the renovation work will stay on track and that the track will remain on calendar and they are pushing for an extension all the way through until 2025 wow um the owners of the circuit currently the deal runs to 2020 Um, The owners of the circuit say that the circuit's engineering department conducted a visit for the Brazilian press on June 22nd to show the current work, which should complete the ambitious three-year, $60 million program to improve the various facilities of the Interlagos circuit before the forthcoming Brazilian Grand Prix taking place in November. All that being said, Bernie still says that he thinks the chances are that it won't happen next year don't know exactly why or whether he doesn't think it'll meet it or if this is just some other game that Bernie's playing because the contract is still in place. Right. So I don't know what's happening with that. Jean Todd, regarding what happened last week with the clash between the 24 Hours of Le Mans race and Formula One, says that he believes that future clashes between the two series would be impossible to avoid. It's impossible to avoid if you design your calendar based on when Le Mans is running, because it's one weekend. He says that overall the motorsport calendar is so congested that they just can't deconflict things, um, despite the fact that WEC championship boss Gerard Neveu called the scheduling a clear attack on his series when the F1 dates were announced last year, and Jean-Todd even going so forth last year to apologize for the clash. 
Um, when asked if he was keen to avoid a similar scheduling problem in the future, Jean Todd said, it's kind of mission impossible. We were talking about how many healthy series there are in motor racing, and we only have 52 weekends. I love watching MotoGP races, so very often it's combined with another race, and I miss it sometimes. I watch the touring car championships, MotoGP, and then a Formula One race. It's great. You can go from one to another to another. I don't know. Seriously. But the fact that we can have this conversation this week when there's no race scheduled. Exactly. Kind of makes you want. Now, I don't know what's going on in the other series. There may be MotoGP going on. There may be some of the other stuff. But there's no crossover between MotoGP drivers and Le Mans drivers. But there was last year between Le Mans and Formula One. Yeah. And I think that that, if we look at the actual cause, I think that that ticked off um, Toast and Eccleston way too much. The other thing that a lot of people called out was that Le Mans was packed. And rainy impact. Rainy impact. And Le Mans typically is packed. Mm-hmm. And F1 went to Baku. Where attendance was low. Right. Just kind of an interesting, and, and that was one of the things that uh, Alan Prost, when he had called out the coverage in Baku, was it was packed out at, at Le Mans, rather empty over at, uh, at, at Baku. Also calling out that he felt that the coverage at Le Mans was, as it always is, Truly outstanding. Now, truly outstanding if you weren't in the United States. Right. Because Fox Sports, and, and they were called out by a lot of outlets, we were trying to sort this out. The start of Fox Sports, or, or, or the start of Le Mans, rather, was supposed to be on Fox Sports 1, which is carried by most cable providers. But for other reasons... Fox Sports made the call. I guess there were, there was a rain delay, which caused some problems with the U.S. Open Golf Championship. So they moved the Le Mans coverage to Fox Sports 2. The comparison with the availability of Fox Sports 2 is that it is about as available as ESPN 8, the Ocho. Oh. <laughs> So it is not available on most providers' basic tiers, nor for that matter is it available on most cable providers' premium sports tiers. Ooh. But that's where Fox Sports chose to move it, and they moved it at the last minute and only really told Twitter. No. Twitter. Yeah. Okay. I think that was about the only place that they had announced that Lamon coverage had moved. Wrong. Yeah. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Anyway, moving back to the race situation. Mm -hmm. Bernie has also said while he was in Baku that currently he is only expecting the 2017 calendar to hold 18 races. I find that crazy since we have 21 this year. And the teams have said pretty much that 21 is their max. So... And we were talking about adding a couple of races, various places that wound up looking like it was going to be a 22 race season. So where did the four races go? Well, that's one of the things is 
he says 18, and he names three that he mentioned to the Times regarding the, the 2017 race schedule. It's the Times of London. Um, but the, the tracks that he lists off don't include Brazil, which we just talked about that he said might be at risk. Mm-hmm. He actually tagged Germany, which, which we knew, knew. could be kind of sketchy. He tagged Italy, mm-hmm. which we knew kind of sketchy. But he's also now tagging Canada as sketchy. Okay, that's Canada, which a- has no attendance issues. It's a very, very popular race that the that the city has embraced warmly, and everybody says, you know, in terms of just overall enthusiasm for the race and excitement and the race taking over, it's like Monaco in that respect. I wonder if this is a ploy somehow. It is a ploy. He wants changes made to the facilities. Oh. Yeah. This is a ploy to get work done to the facility. Okay. Well, that, that's the Bernie plan. But Italy, you know, the, the hope was that Imola could take over, excuse me, could take over Italy. Mm-hmm. There's apparently been a law passed in Italy that makes F1's return to Imola unlikely. There's an Italian financial law that it specifically says that the Italian Grand Prix is Monza and should be at Monza. Specifically calls out that the Italian Grand Prix is held at Monza. Interesting. Now, there are ways around this because in previous years when, when there were races at both tracks, the Italian Grand Prix was still at Monza and Imola was the San Marino Grand Prix. So there is a way that they could have a race in Italy. It just wouldn't be the Italian Grand Prix. So I don't know. It, d- it depends on how serious and if Bernie really has an interest in, A, having a race in Italy, mm-hmm. and whether or not it has to be called the Italian Grand Prix or if it could be called something else. <laughs> the other Italian Grand Prix. Yeah. So our last thing to talk about. Okay. Unless you are living under a rock. Yes. Is the vote this past week uh, for Britain to leave the EU. Because everybody has done a story on Britain exiting and the potential impacts that it could have. So being the crack news agency that the bloke and the bird is, we are no different. Well, we figured we would follow. And and there is actually an impact on Formula One. And it could, despite what some people are saying, it could actually have an impact on the teams and what they do and how they do business. The majority, with the exception of two teams, actually three teams, all of the Formula One teams are centered in England. Correct. Um, very few of the teams have fallbacks to pull out of England if they need to. Renault could do it. They have uh, a sizable facility in Viri. Mm-hmm. Ferrari can obviously do it because they've got Marinello. Toro Rosso has a sizable facility, and I don't remember exactly where it is in, in Italy. Uh, but Red Bull could conceivably move there, or they could go to Austria. 
mm-hmm. um, since they own the Red Bull ring. I'm, I'm sure that facilities could be put in place there. And you've got Sauber in Switzerland. But everybody else... Mercedes has got a... Oh, and Mercedes, I'm sorry. They've, they've got, got a their component. facility in Stuttgart. Right. So they could they could also pull out as well if they needed to. But the way it stands right now, and what the teams leverage with having everything in England is because there's that free movement of people, they can take people from all over Europe and have them work in England mm-hmm. or in Italy or wherever without having to deal with visas, without having to deal with all the other stuff. When a team, when a race is happening anywhere in Europe, logistics are significant significantly easier right now because this is a flow of goods and material and a large flow of goods and material within the eu Mm -hmm. once england pulls out well now there's more customs paperwork that has to be done there's more immigration issues that have to be dealt with because every one of those european races you need to account for the movement of all of that stuff if the deals are put in place like we expect them to and all that free flow stuff shuts off. Exactly. There is also the potential in order to make sure that they can continue to leverage the European motorsport that all of the or or more of these English facilities get shut down so that they don't have to deal with the visas for the personnel. They don't have to deal with all of the other stuff. Which could mean an increase in unemployment within Britain. Because while yes they do have free flow of people not everybody that works in those facilities comes from an EU company. Right. A country. Country. They come from all over and employ quite a few people in England. It's also going to affect um, international attendance at Silverstone mm-hmm. and British attendance at the other European uh, racetracks. Potentially it could. And depending on what happens to the pound as a result, it can affect cost issues. And, and that's, that's the other piece. And then you, you add on top of it the administrative burden of dealing with all of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. But all of that on top of it, ESPN got some words from Bernie Eccleston. And I've got to say, before we even get into what Bernie had to say, they found a picture that was taken by Mark Thompson and provided by Getty Images of Bernie that has got to be, well, it's not flattering. Let's start there. (laughs) But this has got to be that quintessential picture that I think of when we refer to Bernie as the old man shaking his fist at clouds. (laughs) And I've got to decide how I'm going to get, because we don't have a subscription to Getty. Mm -hmm. But this is a Getty image, and it's just awesome. That being said, Bernie says, first off, he believes that the vote was good for the UK. He has always supported the exit, and he thinks that's a that, – and that we knew that, and that's not a huge surprise. I mean, this is a guy who likes Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and thinks they're both strong leaders. So, yeah, there's, there's that whole thing. Uh, but he also says that he doesn't think that this is going to make any difference to Formula One at all. What I think he is looking at it is not so much any impact on the teams whatsoever, but on Formula One as a product. Well, yeah, because that's his only focus. Yeah. 
Um, he says, if we've got something to sell and it's a good product at the right price, people will buy whether they are Chinese, Italian, or German. People will just get over this and get on with their lives. Well, you know, he does fall into the demographic of the people that actually voted for the Brit exit. Yeah. Um, because it, apparently, if you break down by demographics, the over 65 crowd, which Bernie firmly is in, um, were the ones that voted to to leave the EU, while all of the younger people were saying stay. The, the other thing is that while Bernie was in support of it, many of the team bosses came out against Mm -hmm. separate including um ron dennis who wrote a letter to the times arguing for the eu for the uk to remain in the eu um ron's letter said the eu is caricatured by legislation on fruit shapes and health and safety but that is not what this vote is about this referendum is a choice between the known and the unknown the known is contemporary europe a diverse but united commercial and cultural powerhouse the unknown has no model no measure <laughs> no measurability, and no process. It is undeserving of the word alternative. Mm. McLaren is based in the UK. More than 3,000 families are affected by our fortunes, as are British suppliers and their employees. Remaining in Europe is fundamental to the prosperity of the McLaren business. And Dieter Zeech, the president, or the head of uh, Daimler, the parent company of Mercedes F1, uh, says that this is not a good day for Europe, and in my view, certainly not for the UK. Geographically, the country may be an island. Politically and economically, it is not. It is now even more essential than Europe that Europe does not continue to drift further apart. With regard to Daimler, we do not expect any immediate impact. Well. Now, whether it was the right call or not, I don't know. Time will, time will tell. I don't know. Time will tell. But, uh, yeah, that is the news of this. Oh, there was one other story that popped up I did not drop in. Lewis Hamilton has come out today. It was a story that ESPN has, has uh, put up on their page uh, saying that relations between him and Nico are the best they have ever been. <laughs> okay. What Lewis says, because – Drivers, I guess, you know, they no longer meet in the bar for a beer to have a discussion and, and hash things out. They met at the swimming pool in Monaco, mm -hmm. and they hung out, and they chatted, and they talked, and all – they had a really good time, and all all is better, and all is forgiven. Okay. The swimming pool in Monaco. The place to be. Or the the, the place where, where – where, um, to meet your friends and have a good time and i don't know oh i'm sure lewis bounced nico's baby on his knee for a while and all was Th forgiven. that that's what it was nico let him check out the baby and, and hang with the wife and it was good all was good so on that note i think it's time to wrap up next yep. week we have the austrian grand prix or the grand prix of austria okay whichever it is I think it's an Austrian, so you get I, whatever the words are. I don't know because I remember, was it two years ago or last year that we did a drinking game as to how many times you were going to screw up Austrian and Australian? So it's the no, Austrian No, that wasn't Grand me. Prix. That was you. No, it was you. Okay. It was you because it came up in my feed of how many times can Michael screw that up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, we want to hear from you over on the Facebook page. I may try and put up this picture of Bernie. Okay. And decide whether or not I want to run a Falagetti images or not. Um, put up this picture of Bernie because it is definitely, it is that wild, crazy old man thing. All righty. Well, I think that we also need to go take Claire for a spin. Um, you know, it's Sunday. Alrighty, and on that note, I think we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye now. Bye. Bye bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye bye now. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.